I wish we could use the Game of Thrones theme music without being sued. <laughs> like, I feel like we could. It's just we would have to do, like, a cheap knockoff of it. Yeah, like, I don't have the skills enough to do that. <laughs> like, if I just, like, got on here and started, like, scatting it, you know? I feel, like we, <laughs> I feel like we could get away with that and then maybe more people would listen to our show. Yeah, yeah that's, See, there it is. that's good. There it is. That's good. Um... Yeah, that'll work. Come for the book content. No one stay could've... for the Game of Thrones scatting. Maybe we need to like call it something else. You know, like the uh... got scat. Yeah, something. <laughs> oh, oh my! That Don't just, give just all like good... sounds like you're asking <laughs> like if you have poop. <laughs> Don't give all the good ideas off on air. Um, <laughs> so, well, we're gonna talk more about that in a second. So, I figure we should just say welcome to this episode of Print Run. Eric Hain, Laura Zatz. Say hello. Hello. Um, we got all kinds of things to talk about. We today. do. It's You're gonna be very really excited about I'm this episode. I'm chomping at the bit for this one because we have folks. We've got extraordinary organized labor action happening <laughs> on the part of writers and creatives in a way that excites me and hopefully all of you after we talk about it. We've also uh, got some awards. Yeah, we've you know the Pulitzer's came out today. Um, we've got. El Tuluna may concern at the end. You know, the typical fare for your Monday evening. I guess mm-hmm. you'll be hearing this on a Tuesday or later. But uh, before we get into any of that, how about the basics? Yeah, so we have uh, just hit tax day, the middle mm. of April, which means we have three special episodes coming for you starting early next week. So that includes a query show, a first page show, and then we're doing a special episode this month for our $8 a month Patreon subscribers about the call. What happens when you have it? What happens afterward? Mm-hmm. What's going on there? Yeah. Um, especially for you millennials who hate going on the phone like we do. And I would just encourage everyone to sign up because, folks, the tax man came for the loon this year. <laughs> <laughs> so it really did. Please, please sign up. Um, our we're just we're just just one of those small business owners. Everyone loves to pander around during election season. So and um. to to be to be quite honest though, the more people that do sign up for our Patreon, um, the closer we get to reaching a financial goal that will allow us to transcribe our episodes. Because we would love to pay somebody yeah. a working wage to type out this inane stuff yeah. um, for your posterity. So there you go. In the in the style guide for typing it out, there will be an apostrophe between the K and the S in folks. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway, um, well, we, let's let's just knock the thing out. Like, so there are approximately three billion podcasts in existence mm-hmm. right now, and I would venture that all of them, approximately, every are single going one, to, are going to be talking about Game of Thrones. I guarantee you that every <laughs> single one that is run by white people is talking yeah. oh, about yeah. Game of Thrones. Well, so what I would <clears> say, and this is kind of my lead into this. This isn't going to be like a whole fleshed out, thoughtful topic. Oh, but, put a pin in that for a second. Uh-huh. For those of you who are not yet caught up or don't yet listen, we will be posting online at what point <laughs> this becomes a real episode and not just talking about a television show. <laughs> So, uh, fast forward there. It's okay. all real. Continue. Everything I do is real. <laughs> um, I hated it. I hated the first episode. I of hated the eight. whole last season. I don't like the show anymore. 
it makes me angry, and I wish that it wasn't happening. And in fact, Laura, I'm just going to come out guns blazing with all the takes, and you can then refute them. Okay, um, I'm ready to be like swept away <laughs> in like the dragon, like the exactly. dragon flap of your exactly. wings of hate. Um, I am now back to being excited about the books. I hate the show mm. so much that I no longer care that probably a lot of this material is what is going to appear whenever George gets around to finishing the book, if he ever finishes it. But the the idea of the books excites me once again simply because I'm just so furious with how the television show has progressed. Can you be more specific? Nothing happens anymore in Game of Thrones. And when things do happen, there's no tension involved. It's just, like, colorful fan service fireworks or, like, little moments. You can just tell. It just feels like at this point the whole show is designed based on the feedback it's hoping to receive, if that Mm. makes sense. It's, like, it's accounting for the fact that everyone is watching this and staring at it from the internet and wants to, like, talk about, oh, man, there's John and Danny. They're kissing. Oh, look. Gendry and Art. Gendry and Arya are like making eyes at each other. Oh man, we should talk about that. Like, it's just, I just, it's driving me nuts. And I don't know if it's, I think it's the show itself. Obviously, the conversations around the show are insufferable, including this one. But yeah. It, so I have, I have thoughts well, about that. Yeah. No, From a, like a structural, like story perspective. Yeah, get to the tension bit. Cause that's the, that's the actual substance of my critique. Is it feels like the tension has gone out of the right. show. Right. Like so when season seven was about to premiere, uh-huh. um, Benahoff and Weiss, who are the showrunners for Game of Thrones, um, announced that there would only be two more seasons and these yeah. two seasons would be shorter than the previous seasons and that it had always been their goal to have a 70 hour movie and you know at the end of the day Game of Thrones you know in six weeks time will end up being 73 hours long yeah. okay sure um but there is something that happened in season seven where all of a sudden the showrunners like looked at hbo and mm-hmm. they looked at each other and said mm-hmm. oh shit we need to get everybody yep. to westeros because everybody has been spending many many years being all over the place mm-hmm. and so like i think last season they just they lost a lot of nuance and they lost a lot of like the politics and the minutiae and the maneuvering. Everything just blew up all the time. Right. And and because the and people who had spent, you know, a half a season traveling somewhere before all of a sudden just in one episode showed up in a different continent. Mm-hmm. And that drove me batty. I mean, like the there were there were parts of brilliance, right? Like Battle of the Bastards was an amazing season of television well yeah a lot of stuff is really fun and all of it to be clear is fun to look at yeah it's fun to look at it's you know like when they pulled Viserion out of the lake like that was exciting you know what I mean sure but like the it felt like what had made Game of Thrones so rewarding if you you know and that made at least me able to look past the misogyny and the violence and like the and yeah and the assault and like all of this stuff like that's what made it It was was that no other show behaved like this Mm -hmm. and now it's just become kind of like every show and like to be clear like i sat downstairs in my basement and watched that that like that you know under an hour of game of thrones last night Mm -hmm. and i enjoyed it but then afterwards it was like i had just eaten a snack yeah. Like, whereas before, you know, like season three, it was it was like I was eating a rich meal. Sure. Um, it's just like nothing. 
Yeah, I just think I think the reason maybe you feel that way is because nothing happened. Right. In the show. I mean, this All this episode is... <laughs> was table setting, right? It was everybody, like, getting together in fun little, like, groups that had never been together before or okay, hadn't so been together before in years. That point, though, actually, I think is really interesting because you've you've used that line on me before. Not that specific phrase, table setting. But what is it you call it? You call it, like, plot-isode? What, what do you call oh. the ones <laughs> that are, like, set-up episodes? Um, prep-isodes? Yeah, I called yeah. it the prep-isode. Yeah. So, and I can see why... Maybe they think about it that way. It's like you got to have some episodes that are very much kinetic energy and some episodes are about getting everybody in the same place, right? Yeah. Like, but think about how that would extrapolate to like any other storytelling. Like, even when you have setup work to do, if you were editing this as like a novel or something, you would, you still need like conflict based smaller plots to yeah. move the story forward, you know? Yeah. And that's what's missing. They're, they're resting on their preparatory laurels. Yeah. Because, I don't know, I just, I've watched these now, and I remember I was big into the show. Like I, yeah. I like the books primarily, but I remember really enjoying the show for a long time, and it felt like that way because the tension was there. Because it was the small movements, it was the it was the silences, it was the subtle little nods at things. It was all that kind of stuff that just made it. And it just feels like now everything is so loud and over the top. And yeah. look at Tyrion making another joke about balls. Oh my God, this is so funny. It's just like. It feels to me almost like all the things they're doing are designed to get all the feedback they've been receiving, if that makes sense. It's like people Mm -hmm. got online and talked about how much they think this character is funny or how they want these two characters to like do this or that. And it's like that's what's in the show now. (laughs) I don't know. It just feels it feels very fan servicey to me in that way. And I don't I don't like it. I I I like the content. I think that what is this last season should have been stretched out into two and season seven should also have been stretched out into two seasons. So it was better slow. So it was, it was better slow. And like, I mean, if you look at the end of season seven, you have Yara being kidnapped and Theon, you know, kind of like saving himself. Right. That's immediately resolved with absolutely no tension or or structural purpose or reason. Yeah. Or reason other than now Yara knows her uncle's plans. Right. And then you have like and I'm really upset by how I know such a fast season is going to treat the conflict between Sansa and Daenerys. Yeah, because it can be it could be really interesting. And instead, it was last season or last episode distilled down into your sister doesn't like me. Right. Right. And then, you know, and I feel like the same way I was really enthused to see Arya and John get back together and Arya and Gendry making eyes at one another, because I feel like that very much would put into conflict Arya's most recent decisions, especially like leaving the fact that she is the Arya Stark of old behind and instead becoming like the Stark, Mm. like, wolf right and i feel like that's also not going to be given as much of its due good luck finding time for any of that right (laughs) like there's going to be no time with aria reconciling that she's a fundamentally different person sure from when she last saw gendry you know what i mean and so like there's all of these like beautiful like threads that would have been able to be explored previously and they just aren't and like all of a sudden you know you have jamie making this huge decision to leave cersei and then you just all you have from cersei is good the wall is down here braun go kill my brothers that's it and it's like the 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 depth is gone um 
I'm still gonna watch the shit out of this. Oh, let's to be clear. I love doing things that I hate and are bad for me. I don't so hate I, it. So I will be sitting there. I'm just there. disappointed. I'm like, I, I'm it's like, appointment viewing for me. Yeah, for me, I'm yeah. like, well, you're a little bit past your prime. <laughs> um, you know, you were previously, you know, an A student. Mm-hmm. Now we're kind of like a B minus, yeah. but like still passing mm-hmm. and still, mm-hmm. you know, commendable. Yeah. Sure. George, buddy, I need you to just. Just get bu- to buckle down a little, get focused, you know, crank out that last manuscript or two and give us what we need. Which Eric is will never stop books. talking about how Cersei should be the real winner until he gets that book. She's the only good character in the whole show. Anyway. So, For those of moving- you who are just joining us, welcome. Yeah. Hello. Um, Laura. Yes. <clears throat> We've got some action. We and we've got some people who are about that action yeah. in a way that I'm really appreciating in the wide world today. I blew through all of my New York Times articles on oh, yeah. this only on this specific um, event. I think we've so. got an agency subscription to that. Do you not use that? Uh, no, oh, no. I'll give you my login. Okay, later. thank you. <laughs> anyway, because <laughs> I get these really um, like passive aggressive yeah, yeah, yeah. like notes from the New York Times. Yeah. I have that happening with the Washington Post right now. Yeah, where I, I just it could be like the I don't even know what I read there, but every time I open it up, it's like, mm, glad to see you're enjoying the Washington Post. And I'm like, I- I'm not. Like, I haven't read an article. Jeff you're... Bezos, you don't yeah. need my money. Like, leave me alone. Just let me read it. <clears throat> anyway, I would like to read to you the opening line of an article. In the New York Times, it appeared April 12th, a few days ago. Fire your agents. That was the instruction the Writers Guild of America gave to its 13,000 members on Friday after talks between the Hollywood writers and their agents broke down hours before a midnight deadline. So, folks, we are talking big-time labor movement. We're talking about a Writers Guild taking action and sticking up for itself in a way that um, you don't really ever see, frankly. And you don't really ever see. There's a lot about this situation. And this is, this is we're talking here about um, Hollywood writers, like television and film writers, um, basically severing ties with their agents because they don't feel like they're getting a good enough deal. And so there's plenty to unpack here as it relates to book publishing, as it relates to a lot of what publishing's fights will entail in future years, all that kind of stuff. But like, just to kind of give the broad summary here of what's going on is you've got, um, you know, the Writers Guild of America, which, as it says here, comprises about thirteen thousand members of, you know, and these are people who write for television shows, for movies, for you know things like that. And one thing to remember here, I think, is key as we get into you know one of the core concepts of dispute is you know writers' rooms for television shows have lots of people in it, right? Like any given project has a bunch of writers on it. There's this split happening between the writers of this guild and basically, I mean, their agents, right? Like the people who ostensibly represent them. And that's interesting for a bunch of reasons. But the first is that typically in any sort of dispute like this, you would expect the two oppositional parties to be the writers and the production companies, or as we would think of them, the publishers, right? Like the mm-hmm. people the people paying for the work and the people doing the work, right? But that's not what's happening here. What you have instead is a situation where the writers are basically taking a stand against the people who act as their representatives in these negotiations. And so here, you know, the four agencies that, that are being listed as, we're not working with you guys anymore, 
our um, William Morris Endeavor, WME, there they do some book stuff. Hell yeah, they um, do. CAA, uh, United Talent Agency, and ICM. You know, these are names that we know at least. Maybe they've been around for decades. Yeah, these are big, big agencies that do book stuff, that do film stuff. You know, all kinds of things like that. And so the reason it, it maybe it's eyebrow raising. Like, why would writers like like if you think about our jobs, right, Laura? Basically, it boils – like, we're useful to the extent that we can get our clients – Money. The best deal possible yeah. from the pub- – like, we exist to fight for the writer, right? Yep. And the second we don't do that, writers should dump us. And that's kind of what's happening here, and so it kind of begs but the on question. A, but on an industry-wide scale. Yeah, no, and so that's what's interesting here is, like, on a big scale, what you have happening here is this breakdown in faith that – um, you know, the Writers Guild no longer believes that these agents are working in their interest. They think they're working in their own interest, and they think they're working in the production com- company interest. And it hinges on this idea of packaging. Of, it's called packaging deals. Yeah. So there are really two ways that a film or a television show gets made. Um, most commonly, there is something called packaging. Um, which is where an agency or somebody outside of a production company or a um, like channel or mm-hmm. something like that mm-hmm. will think of an idea and they they will collect um, you know uh, get a script they will get writers they will get a star they will get a director and kind of have it all like neatly in a bow and tied together mm-hmm. um, and then they will sell it to um, to a subscription service or a, a film company, a production mm-hmm. company, et cetera. And then they will have that get made. So that is the bulk of how things happen <clears throat> in film and television. Representing, so just as on a very right. basic level, s- representing and including in a deal multiple clients at once. For a, for a for, packaged yes. idea, right? Versus, you know, like NBC developing something in-house by themselves. Yeah. Agents take a 10% cut from writers in film and television versus, you know, a a literary agent's 15%. It's industry standard. It's the way that it is. Um, When a product is packaged, you know, a writer writes a script with maybe a couple of other writers. They get, um, you know, these big companies also represent directors and they represent actors and and kind of this, this larger group of people when all of those people are packaged together for a single idea. Um, and the idea is sold, then what the agency does is they waive their 10%. So the party line, of course, is that, well, writers make more money when they work yeah. on packaged stuff. Mm-hmm. But what isn't um, okay with the Writers Guild, and ha- I don't think it has ever been, but now we've kind of reached a tipping point, is that instead, in lieu of getting that 10% for all like five or whatever of their clients that they sign on this deal... Um, the agency will instead accept a like a like a fee or like a bonus mm-hmm. from the company that buys it. So essentially, um, and that fee can be like huge, hundreds it's of thousands, huge. millions it's, of dollars, depending on bigger, what it is. It's much bigger than the cut they would have gotten right. by making the deal individually better for any of the five clients right. involved. And the right. idea is is that the lower the production costs of a specific. Mm-hmm work that is picked up and produced the higher that packaging reward is for the agent and so it ends up you end up with a situation where you can see how incentives would get misaligned right 
Well, suddenly it's a, you know, it is now, you can see how the agents and the production companies who are theoretically in opposition to one each other in this negotiation can actually collude in a way that makes it so that everyone involved is actually trying to lower the amount of money paid to the writer as a means of then being able to kind of take the bonus on the back end, which the writer doesn't see any of, Mm -hmm. you know, and so this is what fundamentally um, writers have identified, the writer's guild, like I should, I shouldn't say writers, I should say the guild as one cohesive unit, um, has identified as, hey, there's all this money changing hands based on labor we're producing, and we're not getting any of it. And this is kind of a point that I think is, is worth making here. And this is, I think it's one we actually made either last episode or the episode before, I can't quite remember which one it was, but which is that the pie is getting bigger, right? Like there is more money, like, you know, studio executives are making more money right now. Agents in these, um, at these companies are making more money than ever right now. We're in now. the golden age of television. Yeah, exactly. Like there's more shows. <laughs> there are so much content, folks. <laughs> um, and r- the only people not getting a raise right now are the people doing, are the labor, are the people creating, are people writing the material? In fact, right? um, yeah. I saw a statistic earlier today that television writers' weekly pay decreased 23% mm-hmm. from 2014 to 2016. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. I mean, it's, yeah. So, uh, so what, that was a hard line for the Writers Guild in their negotiations. And they signaled that, um, they they were going to bring this up for change a year ago and the deadline ran out mm-hmm. um the deadline ran out today and so now 13,000 members of the writers guild are firing their agents and so the last facet of this that i think kind of correctly irked you know anyone who's got the writers interest truly at heart is that because of this huge influx in private capital to the big agencies we just talked about. You know, these places are flush with cash right now. They've actually, these agencies, now remember what an agent is, it's a representative of the author, right? They've actually gone and created wings of the same company that are now production studios. Mm -hmm. And so there's actually scenarios in which an an agency has their writers and they're selling the writer's talents, you know, they're in negotiation on behalf of the writers to a production company that is the same company as the one as the agency. Yeah. Not so, legally, but like fundamentally, but it's you know, the same it thing. It's the same it's the same people. Like you're so you have a situation where the agent and the production person are colleagues, right? And so you can see how we've reached a point where incentives are fundamentally misaligned, right? And it's this weird thing where now, you know, writers who you know, have you who count on agents to do any number of things, but fundamentally to defend their interests and then negotiate for them, no longer can feel like that's happening. And so we got this we got to this point, you know, the deal they were trying to strike, right? They basically said, You can't do any of this. And they we gave them you know, a year to, warning. We, yeah, we they gave the warning, they did the, all the typical stuff that happens. And the counter offer they received was um by all accounts, you know, and according to the guild you know, insulting almost. Basically, the, the fundamental of it was that they were offered one. You know, writers would get one percent of, of that these, kickback of these of this kickback pay that happens. You know, for the packaging fees, right? They said, okay, you're right. The writers don't get any of the. You know, the big money is in these packaging fees that writers don't get to see any of. So how about this? You can have one percent of that. <laughs> <laughs> and writers guild said no. And of course they said, well, I guess. 
what we're going to get to here is that it's not a necessarily a foregone conclusion that they would say no to that because of a various various reasons. But they did say no because it is a ridiculous offer and it is an unfair deal. And it's, yeah, no, I mean, so basically that's the situation right now. That's where we're at right now. And so now it's kind of the time where we can, you know, look at it and see what we think of it. So, Eric, you sent me a really good article today written by one of the head writers of Grey's Anatomy. Mm-hmm. She's had this show or she's had this job for 15 years um, and basically called and fired her agent that she, by all accounts, loves. Right. Yeah. Um, but but in support of, you know, and as a member of the guild and he it this this article is all about how he tried to sell her. When mm-hmm. she called him to to break up, mm-hmm. essentially, and the big line that all of the agents are using is, "Well, powerful person, powerful writer, you are in a good position. You're well set up. Mm-hmm. You don't need any agenting for the most part. But all of this is going to hurt new writers who won't be given the same opportunities and won't be making as much money because they won't have us to advocate for them." So I want to talk about yes. that for a moment. The idea is, is that by demanding more pay, we're hurting the people who are at the lowest rungs. So this is going to be, like we, we mentioned earlier at the top of the show, that the biggest weapon that like established industry people have against like this, against the Writers Guild, and against, like, obviously, Laura, you and I are constantly thinking about these things in terms of book publishing like Mm -hmm. what if book authors did this and the situation is analogous and the the biggest thing that stands in the way i think is this idea of precarity Mm -hmm. right it's that basically what this man has you know told her is that you by doing this by taking you know by mass this mass severing of relationships between you know, everyone who's involved in the Writers Guild and any agent of any influence in the film industry, you are, you're hurting the careers of young writers. Like, you are the, you know, you're the head writer of Grey's Anatomy. You don't need this. Like, it's fine if you fire your agent, but what about all the people you're selling out? What about the people who are trying to get their start? You can see how he's trying to drive a wedge, right? And that's, and basically, it just gets at that idea versus short and long-term gain and this concept again of precarity, which is that what he's unspokenly saying there is that writers can be discarded at any point. Mm-hmm. People who enter this industry are—I don't know if dispensable is the right word—but it's easy to fall out of it. Like it's hard to make a career in this because opportunities, especially when you're young and unestablished, are few and far between. And one of the only things they really have going for them is the chance to get an agent who can help them, right? And if you, ta- if you take that away from them, then you, higher-ups in this guild, are the bad guy, as opposed to us, who are simply just here trying to help, right? And to me, that's, like, that is the bedrock of what we're talking about here in so many ways. Like, on just an existential level, this idea that that's what is going to be thrown at you. That's what's going to be thrown at anyone who ever, ever argues in publishing and film or otherwise on behalf of the writers. It's that any stand you can take, any amount of, hey, we don't accept these terms. We want, we want something better. We want something that is fair. We want to be paid something that is commensurate with the value we're providing. 
and we're willing and the and the operative part here is and we're willing to walk away, you know, if we don't get it. Yeah. The first thing that's going to happen is they're going to say, if you walk away, there's no like you're hurting everyone. Like then there's no coming back for a lot of these people. Like you can survive it, but you know, all the upstart, you know, debut writers, you know, in your guild, they can't survive this. You're hurting them. Why are you hurting them? You know, like it's it's this line and a lot of a lot of uh, agents, I think, a lot of these agencies were betting on the fact that hiring season for television is coming up very, very soon. Mm-hmm. It's when um, networks and showrunners select writers for their writers' room for yeah. you know the next season, the next year, and um, the idea is is that if we don't have these packagers in place, if we don't have these agents in place to to get these authors established, then they're not going to get money. They're not going to be able to survive here. But something really amazing has happened, Eric, mm-hmm. which kind of hits a point home about how writers are actually the only essential part of this equation. Yes. Um, which is that all of these writers have started this beautiful referral network and they've they've used and leveraged technology in the past, you know, 48 hours to give advice and support to people so that they can apply for jobs directly. So let's that's I think so critical. And I just want to like take a step back and look at the systems in place here, right? So like on a structural level, these writers mm-hmm. have they've looked at, okay, what does an agent, even in the best case scenario, what does an agent do for me? They negotiate for me, but they also Provide they, opportunities. They, they help you find jobs, right? Like they help you find opportunities and all this stuff. And they so they've said, we're well, if we're firing our agents, not only will we have to negotiate for ourselves in the time for the time being, we'll also have to learn, figure out how to find jobs, right? Like we have to replace that work that agents were doing. And what you've just pointed out is such a great example of something that I know that we've tweeted about before, but <laughs> this idea of alternate structures, right? Right. This idea that. If you stand up for yourself in any way that's meaningful, like they're doing here in this extraordinary way, you have to be able to replace the infrastructure you're willing to forego to get what you deserve. And this is such a great key. So they, yeah, they've set up these, you know, these portals where writers can go, you know, very easily and go and apply for certain jobs and find them. You know, there's these databases people are setting up. They're they're functioning or starting to. You know, I mean, obviously with this sort of organization. You're doing so much of this on the back of a napkin, right? Like it's very right. primordial in a lot of ways. But you're creating, you know, interim structures for people to use now that they don't have access to agents. And so it does point out what you just said, which is that it highlights that fundamentally an agent is not a necessary part of the equation. And Especially that, not as a packager. Exactly. Oh, yeah, definitely not. as a, It's because you have two sides here. On any sort of basic level, you've got the people doing the work and the people willing to pay for it, you know? And if your plight is with the middleman, that's actually a lot easier of a fight to pick up than, like, it would be one thing if, like, I feel like a writer's strike is more difficult if their qualm is with the production studios. Mm -hmm. Because they're the ones, like, it's tough to make a movie without a production studio, you know what I mean? But, like, if... All those pieces are still in place, and the only thing missing is this like floaty middleman with agents. And like, obviously, we're, <laughs> obviously we're agents, and but I think that we're both kind of in alignment with in um, the belief that on a very basic level, you and I don't necessarily <laughs> need to exist, right? Like, sure, it's 
I mean, we do other things, but like on a pure negotiative, you know, level, like we're not exactly essential costs. You can this. do this without us, Exa- even yeah. though you shouldn't. Yes, perfect. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Like, and so the alternate structures that you know that agents can provide, or the the things that agents can provide, can be all can be consumed by alternate structures, right. and that's what's happening here in a way that I think, at least for the time being, betters their position a little bit. And to be clear, like we're reporting on this and there is no data about what is going to happen to writer salaries Mm -hmm. in the future. Right. Like there is without this packaging um, kickback, like nobody's ever done that before. There has, you know, the the packaging um, agreement that the guild has had in place with agencies has been in place since the 70s. And like Mm -hmm. nobody knows but the fact that other people are making money and the writer's pay is going down, that, mm-hmm. like, it can't get worse than that. So let me read you. I want to read you a paragraph from this article by, and I don't know that we've even, we've even named her yet. Krista Vernoff is her name. Um, but there's this line in here that really kind of gets at me. And you could almost see this directly in relation to publishing, right? And mm-hmm. so here, here's this paragraph. If you look at what an executive was making 15 years ago versus what they are making now, there's been a significant raise. If you look at what an agent was making 15 years ago versus what they are making now, there's been a significant raise. And the agencies who supposedly represent us are now worth billions. Meanwhile, writers are being held flat. Talent, on the whole, has been held flat or seen a radically reduced income for a long time now. One related example, when I started in television, actors regularly made their series regular quotes for a guest spot on TV, but for the last decade, top of show became the standard. Top of show is industry code for SAG minimum. You can't make a living when you're earning the minimum. It is not right that the MBAs get rich on the backs of the talent while the talent have to wait tables to pay rent. It's publishing, right? Yeah. Like, it's the same damn thing. It's, it's the same thing. It's that... You know, there's more money coming in all the time from all sorts of external investment from, you know, whoever it is from these structures. But the and the only people not getting any part of it are the, are the workers, you know. And, like, I don't know what to, you know, you get, you know, and she talks about this very, the reason I really liked this piece by her is that it really kind of sheds a light on the emotion of what's happening here in a lot of ways. Like, this stuff is hard. And the reason it doesn't happen more is because there are some strong counter arguments that hit you in the human parts of yourself, right? Like this idea that um, you know you are putting you know young people's immediate you know prospects at risk, you know, by doing something like this. Like it, it is harder to get a job when there aren't agents involved, like because that's what they're there to do is help you find jobs, and it is harder to you know do things when the pipeline is fully disrupted. And all this stuff, and that is the line that's being thrown at them now. It's like you are shaking things up in a way that you do not – that is not going to benefit you. That's the thing that always gets hit anytime there's any kind of strike like this, right? It's you're messing up something, and you thought you were – you're going to end up in a worse position than where you were at. You're going to wish you were back where you were. And I think at one point in one – maybe it was a Times article, I think they referred to it or I guess some – you know, industry people were referring to what the writers are doing as analogous to like a Brexit, right? Where it was like, they're like, these people are just, you know, recklessly deciding to exit an agreement without actually, 
you know, thinking through it and they're going to they're going to end up paying the costs. Yeah, except that if England leaves the EU, like the EU doesn't cease to function, whereas if the writers leave the writer agent relationship, that's a great point. It seeks to like it it ceases to function. And so I guess, you know, the first thing, you know, that that really strikes me here is one, the strength in numbers. Right. Like the Writers Guild of America is not small. Thirteen thousand members is a lot of writers. A lot of people. And they're more powerful the more people you have under that umbrella. And and I guess just secondly, the reason I'm moved by, by what's happening here and the reason I feel kind of strongly about it and support it is that it's just brave, man. Like it just takes – it takes a lot to look at a system where you're already – not only are you being given poor terms, but you're being given poor terms on the condition that if you say anything – they could, they could, you know, you could simply lose your the small foothold you have, right? Yeah. And they've said no. Collectively, we're going to look out for each other. We're going to do these things. We're going to take on, we're going to spread that risk together. You know what I mean? Like we're going to, whatever happens, it's our cohesive unit's burden to bear, as opposed to any one person. Mm-hmm. And it that risk is worth challenging institutional strongholds that aren't treating workers fairly, and. I don't know. I think that that's, I think that that's brave. I think that that is meaningful. I mean, who knows how this will go? I hope that it goes well for them. I have a suspicion that a lot of people are getting yelled at. Oh, everyone's at, getting yelled at. It's, and it's <laughs> right going to intensify, and it's going to, you know, things are going to happen a certain way. But like, I also think that at the early stages like this. You get every rhetorical line thrown at you. You get told that you're hurting writers. You get told that you're disrupting things in ways that are going to hurt you. Like, the one thing that, um, what I always think is interesting, whenever this comes up, is the side being, you know, organized against. Their first line of argumentation is always, you're hurting yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you're not hurting us. We're fine. It's, you're doing this to yourself, and you're, like, why are you putting yourself in a worse position than the one you were in? And... It's just you got to see through all that. And like what I like about this is that it just it feels so bold to me in in the way it just says, you know what? We know what we need. We know what's best for us. We've done the organizational work. We've put together the people. We've got the weight to throw around that comes from the hard work of organizing. And we're ready to kind of flex it a little bit to the best degree we can. And it's like, you know what? More power to you. Hell and yeah. And I just, I don't know. You we'll... fight those White Walkers. <laughs> wow, that's the best moment Game of Thrones has had all season. I know, right? Um, but <laughs> the it's... organized labor is just uh, insane. I don't know. It's just, I hope that I hope that it goes well. I don't know how it's going to go. I don't claim to be an expert in these things. But just on an elemental, just like in your heart, you've got to feel it, right? Like, it's, there's, you know, these are the people taking the stand. And I don't know. Like, At this point, I also really wish that we had the rights to sing uh, songs from Les Mis, because that would also be incredibly <laughs> fitting right now. I'm going to break into can, solidarity forever by the Can end you of the feel show, the people sing? Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about Pulitzers. Please. Yes. Um, there's really... So, is there that much to even to say about I mean, them? Just So, we got the results today. We did. What do we think about um, it? Truthfully... Uh, one thing that always drives me batty about mm-hmm. the Pulitzers is that they're not like clear 
on what they're awarding people for. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? That's like for, yeah. you know, for opinion, this person, but then they don't like list what that person has done. Mm-hmm. Um, so quite honestly, I just like usually just because of the poor reporting, um, skip over a lot of the news ones. But I did um, look up the the novel yeah. that won the Pulitzer yeah. and it is the Overstory by Richard Powers. Um, quite honestly, I've never heard of that book before. So, you, so I haven't read. I have heard of it, and I do know Richard Powers. Yeah. But um, the one thing I will say about a hallmark of all Pulitzer winners is that it feels like the book has existed for like seven years. <laughs> and for me, like. I feel like I've been staring at the overstory on the front table of every bookstore since I was like 12. Really? Yeah. Because no, I, I've never really? oh, seen man. it I, ever in my entire I'll, life. I could tell I could like paint you the cover right now because I stare at it so frequently. It's just it to me it's the like the omnipresent book in the way the sellout was for a while, which is why I picked it yeah, to win yeah, the man yeah. booker that one time. Like it's So this is a 500 page yeah, book just about a, trees. Hell like yeah. it's an eco <laughs> Like, it's basically, like, an eco-novel. Everybody's, like, talking about how it is touching on that. But so Mm. I went to go read about this. I was like, what do you mean it's a book about trees? So I went on to the Amazon page and I read the reviews. Yeah. Um, Really good site for good literary criticism. Yeah. uh, Because we have a dearth of literary critics in the Mm. world right now. Mm -hmm. So you have to go where you need to. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, And so a lot of people are talking about, like, how beautiful and heartrending and hopeful and depressing it is that there is this beautiful novel about humans and trees and Mm. what that means. And it kind of, like, spans countries and it spans like all there's a lot of main care it's a it's a tour de force right 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 (laughs) but then i clicked on the one star views and this one is my favorite um it is a one star uh from a woman named jill um bring the heat jill jill vosberg and jill vosberg uh, it's a verified purchase just in case Mm -hmm. you're worried that she didn't read this book um she gave it one star and then the heading is about people not trees. <laughs> and, so, and so then she said, wanted to read about trees, but instead every story was about people. Perhaps the description should say stories about people whose lives were touched by trees. I didn't care about any of the story characters. If you want to read about trees, try The Hidden Life of Trees, a fascinating book. For more excitement and some people, try The Wild Trees about climbing the giant sequoias. The book had too many people in it, folks. Not enough trees. Not enough trees. Like, I just so appreciate Jill, like, being super jazzed about this very, like, well respected author writing about trees and she's like i am a tree enthusiast i am so excited and then like she was disappointed and she wasn't afraid to show it i love the idea of reading of like picking up literary fiction and judging it purely on its literal promises yeah like i'm gonna go on after we get done here i'm gonna get online and be like folks there weren't enough tigers or wives in this book. It's it's no good. The, the tigers' wife. I was I was here for the tigers and the wives. There was none. There was barely any of either. Yeah, they're um the next one star review down from a man named Bob. Yeah. Uh, he said he mostly liked only the references to trees. <laughs> <laughs> like this is a whole thing. Is yeah. that they wanted and the then trees. and then the one right after that, a man named John said disappointingly inaccurate information about trees. <laughs> In a novel. In a novel. Yeah. I love that. So just 
quite honestly, because of, like, I didn't, like, I read all of, like, the fawning, flowery, Mm -hmm. like, purple prose in the five-star reviews, and I was like, I don't need to read this book. But now reading about people being mad about the trees, like, I really want to read it. I think it's fair to say that The Overstory is a controversial Pulitzer pick, given that it received such mixed coverage. (laughs) Uh, A lot of people felt there weren't enough trees in the book. I don't know how they can give the award that way. Inaccurate information about trees, which... Frankly, huge if true. <laughs> so the other finalists, real quick, uh, The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay, There There by Tommy Orange, which um, I have read. It's a and has won everything that this book season. Is, that's the uh, that's the other one. If the Overstory is the book I'm seeing everywhere, There There was the book from last year that I heard about everywhere. Um, good book. I know I didn't. I almost bought The Great Believers. I didn't quite get around to it, but there's um, still time. I know. Time is endless. You never know when you're going to die, do you? Except uh, <laughs> unless you're Notre Dame. Yeah. Oh God. Too soon. Ooh, Too my soon. God. Wow. I, honestly, I'm like Shit. very upset about yeah, that. So, yeah, I've well, been like having quiet moments of grief all day long. Like I know. It's that. the only way I can cope. You can cut that out. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> we have general nonfiction. All right. All right. General nonfiction. Um, the winner was Amity and Prosperity, One Family and the Fracturing of America by Eliza Griswold. Um, that's great. I also saw that um, Max Boot was a finalist for the History Award. So we can throw out the entire concept of the Pulitzers and move on to our final segment. This is not our final segment. But did you know that there was a Pulitzer Prize of Music? Because I, I found that, that out today. Yeah, I didn't know that. I thought it was journalism and like yeah. I thought it was writing. Yeah. Turns out... Also music. Didn't we give one to Aretha? Did I read? Yeah. Yeah. She we, won the a special, special citation. Yeah. Which feels like a like a lifetime achievement. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that is. Yeah. But good job, Aretha. You mm-hmm. earn literally everything in this world. <laughs> okay. Taluna may concern. <laughs> this is a really, we're really hitting the polish on this episode. I'm feeling <laughs> really up, good Eric. about where it's going. Taloon, it may concern. Yes, please. I am a white writer. Mm. I write diverse characters in my story. But now with the fallout from blood air being pulled from shelves, I am uncertain what to do. I do not want to harm anyone with my story, but I feel like as a white woman, I cannot fully know if it is harmful to a demographic that I am not a part of. Is investing in sensitivity readers enough? Is there more that you suggest I do? I have read stories by white women with diverse rep. Truth Wish, Ash Princess, etc. But I'm scared that I might be missing something problematic in my own work that CPs and betas might also have missed. Obviously, I don't want to eliminate my diverse characters, but which is less harmful? Not writing diverse characters when I am not POC myself or writing diverse characters and risking potential harm to readers. Sincere thanks for your wisdom, a concerned ally. Okay, so I have seen variations on this question actually quite a bit over the last few years of mm-hmm. like you get well-meaning white people who you know see the conversations happening participate in the conversations happening about the need for diversity about representation all this stuff that we all agree is good stuff in books and they think well how can i not be part of the like if the problem is too many if the per, if here's the fundamental problem they face if you're a well-meaning person like this person is if the problem is that white people are being disproportionately published in relation to everybody else and you have disproportionate representation, 
how like how as you a white person trying to write a book how do you not become part of that problem how right? do you not like, become somebody taking up right. a space writing <clears throat> stories that don't belong to you and so it's a it's a complex question and it one that requires you know doing your due diligence i think right and to me it's it's definitely finding you know critique partners that come from backgrounds that don't have you know that are different than yours, you know, from absolutely like, higher higher beta readers. Right, exactly. Finding people who have a perspective that isn't yours that you can say, "Hey, what am I missing here?" You know, and some of it, like fiction, so often, like I, f- I feel like people will think about doing research for their book in a way that often doesn't necessarily have much to do with people. Like they think about it in terms of like a historical setting or a um, you know a technological thing or whatever it is, but I also think that there's a certain amount of due diligence that comes with really making sure that you've done enough to understand, you know, the life, you know, the life of someone that you might theoretically, you know, create as a character. And so to me, it's just about not only doing your due diligence up front, but then also, you know, checking yourself by, you know, involving, you know, readers at the level of, um, you know, before it's published. And that is a, that in and of itself is a process that involves creating relationships, right? Like if you if you're someone who's written a a book that, you know, features characters of a different walk of life or a different race or a different um, you know, even just a different gender, you know, than yours, like you have to be able to, you know, trust that what you've written is authentic and the way you do that is by finding readers who fit that bill and the way you find those readers though is to actually do the legwork to meet those people and to be a part of those sorts of writing communities you know and so it's almost like to me and Laura obviously I want to hear what you, what you think about this but uh, so much of the like the checks and balances and the legwork that happens here happens before this book even comes to exist it's when you you know, you make sure that the writing groups you're in are involving people of of many different perspectives. It's when, you know, your critique partners are, you know, a diverse set of people. It's when, you know, the people you're reading, you know, I mean, if, if writing is a product of the books you read, you know, are you reading people who don't necessarily, you know, look like you? And so you can see how you can start to kind of build a, a literary life that is cognizant of other perspectives before you've even set, like, writing the novel is almost the last step of that. You it know? is, And yeah. by then, you know, theoretically, not only have you done some of the upfront legwork yourself, you've also surrounded yourself with a network of people that you have a relationship with and an established relationship with that will tell you, hey, you know, you're missing something here. Or, hey, you know, this particular bit doesn't quite ring true to me. Or, and then can, and also can just tell you what's working, you know, what makes sense to them. And um, so to me, it's like, the answer to this is upfront, you know, fleshing out your writing life in a way that isn't going to leave you or is going to help you with your blind spots before you even start worrying about individual characters, you know? Yeah. So I think that the well-intentioned fear with regards to, like, cancel culture, yeah. you know, from from a educated enough ally is it's not that I don't want to be canceled it's that I don't want to cause any harm yeah. Yeah. and th- like and thus be canceled <laughs> right yeah and so yeah. I think a huge problem so as a as a white writer 
you have a responsibility mm. um, and it's kind of a it's it, it, you have a responsibility on both sides of, of, of this topic. So number one is you have a responsibility to not appropriate stories that belong mm-hmm. to other people. Mm-hmm. Right. So you should not tell a, you know, a, an allegory for for civil rights and and. Um, slavery if you're writing for the American market because it's not like you're not going to have the necessary depth or historical context to really do it justice but on the other side what you shouldn't do is completely erase everybody that isn't like you from your fiction because you're afraid yeah um and so like really what it comes down to is is a balance and it becomes down to and it comes down to education like people writers of color will always say you know just because you have a beta reader or like a you have a sensitivity reader doesn't mean that they're like their job is not to give you a pass for your book like their job is to point out problematic issues and in hopes that you will find them but like some things also cannot be fixed some things are just fundamentally flawed and should not be written. And so I think as a writer, to piggyback Eric off of what you were saying, it is absolutely your job to not only do research and reading widely, but also to really like take time and really consider the cultural implications of what it is that you're writing. How will this be seen from somebody from a different background, even in my own country? What are the historical ramifications therein? You know, like, so a really common example is like blood and like half bloods, um, you know, like that sort of thing, which becomes a really, really big problem in science fiction and fantasy. And that is so fraught because of um, the history of Native American and black people in the United States. And so to really like dig into that and truly understand the ramifications of your your story will have on the people reading it like that is a big deal. Um, It's also up to you to really just be hyper aware so i so to tell a little bit of a story um i have an author and and she is of color um but she is her book um that is set in the 1920s during Mm -hmm. prohibition um we were talking with her publisher about a series title and the idea is that we wanted to call it something having to do with jazz age Mm -hmm. but the thing is is that this book takes place in manhattan and while it has characters like black characters um black characters are not the main characters in this book and so we felt that it would be at best misleading and at worst harmful to have a series title that references um a a a name and a history that is primarily based primarily based in the african-american community in manhattan in the 1920s and so we changed it and, you know, like that. Yeah. So like that awareness of like how your actions will affect other people. And just like if you're worried about it, then just change it. It doesn't mean that you like fundamentally need to change your story unless your story is fundamentally flawed. But like it is your job to represent the world the way that it is, but also to leave room and bring up and support authors of color who might not have the chances that you do. So I think in essence... The answer is just to be willing to, you know, do the legwork, read widely, 
you know, be responsible with this stuff, be conscientious, all that kind of thing, right? Like, it's just about making sure that you're handling things on the level that you need to as a means of being responsible, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's that's very good. And, you know, as always, remember that sensitivity reads are just by one person. Um, and just because one person right. doesn't necessarily find something doesn't mean you don't have a long way to go. Right. Um, and so with that, I will leave you. Thank you so much for joining us on this, our 99th episode of Print Run. Jamboree coming up. Yep, yep. Stay tuned next week for our 100th episode, Jamboree. If you don't know what a Jamboree is... Good Tune luck in. Tune because in, folks. we don't either. <laughs> Remember, um, if you have queries or first pages, send them to us. We are at printrunpodcast at gmail.com and we will see you at the Jamboree.